0: Well, we've come to the conclusion or the concluding meeting of our holy convocation. i am just been overjoyed to be here with God's people. You know, it's one thing every day to pray for Gaisley Bible Fellowship, as Glenys and I do, but it's another thing to be here and to fellowship and to see that God is still working mightily amongst his people. Yes, we wish that there were thousands here, and there are no doubt thousands upon thousands in the various meetings that have been conducted by Gaisley Fellowship if it was not for bigotry and bias who would be greatly blessed. You know, what a tragedy it is that there are those in God's church who believe it's their beholden duty to keep the truth from the people. And they'll stop at nothing in order to ensure that that object is reached. But I thank God for the faithful ones who make God their stay. Make God their stay. And as we study in concluding these meetings, the book of Revelation chapter 13... And the mark of the beast, we will be looking not so much at the Sunday, the Sunday laws, which, of course, we already know represents the mark of the beast. But as far as character is concerned, the mark of the beast is the character of Satan in the life. And that is manifest by keeping his counterfeit Sabbath It's manifested by the Sunday law. And we know that it is not of God because God never coerces. Not one of us, I pray, would ever be in favour of a Sabbath law. I would not. It would be just as evil to have a Sabbath law as a Sunday law. I'm speaking not of the law of God. I'm meaning a civil law enforcing Sabbath keeping. Sabbath keeping comes from the heart not from coercive laws, not because of penalties, but because we are filled with the love of Christ and because his character is precious to us. As you know, the book of Ezekiel deals with the seal of the living God and the mark of the beast. And I want to spend some time looking at that important chapter. I know that we've studied it over and over again. It is well known to Seventh-day Adventists. But sometimes when chapters become well known, there's a tendency for us to cease to study them and gradually their import and their impact is lost. And so it does as well to come back and look at the Old Testament description of that which is transpiring at the end of time. Verse 1 of Ezekiel chapter 9. But before we come to chapter 9, we must remember that it is a follow-on from chapter 8 where abominations of every kind were found in the church. Remember the first abomination? Verse 5 of chapter 8, Then said he unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now, The way toward the north, so I lifted up mine eyes, the way toward the north and behold, northward at the gate, the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. Idolatry in the holy temple of God. And today God looks down on his church and he sees such idolatry. Or we don't have uh, idols that are made with hands. But we have other forms of idols. Great Controversy 583. It is as easy to make an idol of false doctrines and theories as to fashion an idol of wood and stone. Our church today is full of idols of the mind, fashioned by our minds. False doctrines, false practices, they are all idolatry. And God... Is reminding the Jew, the Church of Judah, of their idolatry. The second abomination. So I went in, verse ten, <clears throat> and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things and abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed upon the wall round about. You know, paganism hasn't changed. You go to Cambodia. I can remember going to a big temple in. Cambodia. What do you have? All these abominable things painted on the wall. And I thought to myself, Ezekiel 8. 3,000 years almost later, 2,500, the pagans haven't changed. Painting abominable things. And that form of paganism was taken into the very church of God, into the sacred holy temple in Jerusalem. The third abomination. And there stood before them 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And in the midst of them sh- stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, with every man his censer in his hand. What were they if they had the censer in their hand? These were the priests. These were the, the ministers of the, of the temple. And a thick cloud of incense went up. Here was incense, which was supposed to represent the ascension of the prayers the earnest, holy prayers of God's people to the heavenly Father. These men were going through all the trappings of the faith. But what was happening? Verse 12. Then we're reading chapter 8 for those who've just come in of Ezekiel eight twelve. Then said he unto me, Son of man, Hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. All they were pious priests holding the censer, pretending that they were representing the prayers ascending to God. But in the dark, when no one was around, they were living lives of vile apostasy. And there are many pastors today doing no less than that. The fourth abomination. These are the women. Verse 14. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tamas. Paganism. You see, this was a wonderful ecumenical movement, wasn't it? The religions of Canaan and the, the religions of God uniting. Oh, yes, there was still some of the religion of God being practiced. But this was the religion of Babylon, the mixing of truth and error, the mixing of the sacred and the profane, the mixing of the religion of our God with the religion of Satan. And then the final one. And he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and behold at the door of the temple of the Lord between the porch and the altar were about five and twenty men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their face toward the east and they worshipped the sun towards the east. How many Seventh-day Adventist ministers today and lay people have their back towards the sanctuary? They have discarded it. There's nothing more disdaining than to turn your back on somebody. They have turned their back on the sanctuary of the Lord. 25. Why 25? This represented the high priest and the leaders of the 24 courses of the priests. There were 24 teams of priests and each had a leader. These were the very top leaders of the Jewish religion the high priest, and the 24 leaders of the courses, 25 in all. And instead of leading out in the services of the sanctuary, they had turned their back and they were looking east towards the sun. They have taken up the worship of Babylon in the church. We must understand that background before studying Ezekiel nine. Is it any wonder that the angel turned to Elijah uh, to Ezekiel and said, then he said unto me, hast thou seen this, O son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence and have returned to provoke me to anger, and lo, they put the branch to their nose. Brothers and sisters, is it a light thing to you, what is happening in God's church? You know, sometimes we have seen it for so long that it's starting to look not as sinful as it did the first time. These abominations which we see in our church... We can become almost immune to them to the point where all we say is tut tut. Wish they could do a little better. Brothers and sisters, the repetition of abominations does not lessen the guilt. It enhances the guilt. Do we love our Lord to the point where we are absolutely devastated? Or as the next chapter says, sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. Verse 1 of chapter 9, He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near. That city, of course, was Jerusalem, and Jerusalem represents God's church. Remember, I quoted yesterday, Third Selected Messages 338, the same disobedience, sorry, the ancient prophets spoke less for their own time than for ours so that their prophesying is in force for us. He cried also in my ear with a loud voice saying, Cause them that have charge over the city to draw near every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. There's going to be a destroying mark at the end of time. And behold, six men came from the way of the higher gate, which lieth towards the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen, with a rider's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. You'll notice where the preponderance is. It's not with the rider's inkhorn. It's with the slaughter weapon. What does this indicate to us? It indicates that in the sealing process, the large majority of God's people are going to receive the mark of the beast and the small minority, the mark or the seal of the living God. Verse 3, And the glory of the God of Israel was gone up from the cherub, whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the rider's inkhorn by his side. This is the angel with the seal of the living God, the rider's inkhorn. This is what he was called to do. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem. Now I want you to notice this it's through Jerusalem. Jerusalem represented God's church. I find so many people who are very upset with what is happening. In God's church today. That they want to call the church Babylon. They want to become separationists. And have nothing whatsoever to do with it. But in the end of time. God's people. The one who received the mark. Will be in Jerusalem. They will be in the church. Or oh, yes. They may have been, not be on the, the roll anymore. But they don't go around and saying, I'll never use the name Seventh-day Adventist again. They are the true Seventh-day Adventists. They are the loyal Seventh-day We, brothers and sisters, are Seventh-day Adventists, irrespective of whether our name name is on the church roll or if it is cast off for righteousness' sake. I'm not meaning if we're cast out because we have no uh, good reason to be in the church for evil. That's a different matter. I'm not speaking of that. I'm speaking of those who are cast out for righteousness' sake. Some of you know that in December 1994, an effort was made to disfellowship me from the church of which I'm a member. I go there very infrequently because I happen to live about 900 kilometres from my church and, you know, you can't make weekly visits there. And in any case, I'm away like I, I have been this weekend almost every Sabbath of the year. I was promised by the pastor that if any action was taken, they would notify me. They knew my peripatetic ways and that, uh, so that they could ha- make a time that I could be there to say something in my defence. He did not do that. I think he was hoping that uh, I wouldn't be able to come. Just a few days before it was to, hel- was to be held, I was notified. I wasn't even home. I was doing camp meetings up in the city of Brisbane. Fortunately, I was able to arrange the program in such a way that I could fly down. If it had just been one week later, that pastor would have found me flying the Pacific at that time, and he would have had his wish. I would not have been able to attend, but God kept that knowledge from him. There were... 73 people at that disfellowshipment. The pastor chaired the meeting. He'd spent the past week or more going around the members, urging them to vote for my disfellowshipment, and then claimed he could be an impartial judge. Now, I wonder, in a court of law in England, brothers, brothers, brothers and sisters, if you were charged with a crime and you found the judge sitting there and one who'd been going around writing about your guilt and, and telling other people you were guilty you wouldn't uh, sort of be looking for a very fair child, would you? But he claimed he could be impartial even though he'd been going around to all the members. The the conference president, who I'd known as a little boy, and uh, the conference secretary-treasurer there to try and put backbone into the people. And uh, there were those who were very favourable towards me. And they knew the people well in the church. And of the 73 that was there, they said... The maximum number of votes in my favour would be 21. Well, you know you don't win a vote of 21 out of 73. Uh, 52 happens to be quite a substantial majority to 21. The meeting went on for four hours. And uh, I was given the opportunity to speak at last, at the end. I didn't speak, I preached, because I was being accused of failure to follow properly constituted church authority. That was my sin. So I took the opportunity to preach on the subject of properly constituted church authority. And I went back to the fourth and fifth chapters of the book of Acts. And I said, at the very inception of the Christian church, the matter of properly constituted church authority was determined. Peter and John were taken up before uh, men like Caiaphas, Annas, John and Alexander, not John the Apostle, but uh, John, one of the uh, members of the Sanhedrin. And they were charged to no more speak in Christ's name. Now, they had to make a decision. Here were the leaders of God's church. Remember, this is AD 31. It was not yet AD 34. So they were the leaders of God's church still had forbidden them to preach in Christ's name. On the other hand, Christ had told them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. They had to make a decision. Should they obey the words of the leaders of God's church, which were contrary to the words of Christ or the words of Christ? And you know that they said, we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Brothers and sisters, is that how strong... The urge to get the message out is in your heart. You just can't stop preaching it. You cannot stop speaking it. And they didn't know what to do. Eventually, they, they, uh, they jailed them, eventually. And you know that an angel, the Lord, came. Now, of course, Peter and John had made some very big mistakes in their lives. Were they mistaken in this decision? We ought to obey God rather than man. Were they mistaken? Well, how do we know? We know because an angel came, released them from jail, from their imprisonment, and said, go ye back to the temple and preach the word. In other words, here was the angel of God instructing them to to disobey the words of the leaders of God's church. And then I pointed to the people and I said, we must observe properly constituted church authority. We must. But that authority begins and ends with the words of this book. Anything that the church leadership commends to us, I don't say command, that we shouldn't be commanding, but commends to us, which is in this book, brothers and sisters, with all joy, obey it. All joy. But when it goes beyond the words of Scripture, it is time to disobey the leaders of God's church because they have gone beyond properly constituted church authority. And if we commence and continue to obey the words of men contrary to the word of God, we will receive the mark of the beast for that is a characteristic of those who receive the mark of the beast. And so the vote was taken. I prayed with very little hope, but I had told the people, I came in here tonight as a Seventh-day Adventist. Irrespective of your decision tonight, I leave as a faithful Seventh-day Adventist. I had no intention of not being a Seventh-day Adventist. I'd only been voted into the church membership By 32 votes to 31, you couldn't have had a lesser majority. So I knew that it was tight. And as I'd been told, at the best I could hope for 21 votes. But I still prayed, there's a God in heaven. And uh, there were three tellers that were appointed to do the counting, including the pastor. You want to make sure, of course, there was no no mistake. (laughs) And uh, I saw the two piles, you know, yes or no. And they were keeping pretty close tally. (laughs) You can't tell exactly, but uh, they were keeping close. I'm not going to tell you who I voted, which way I voted, brothers and sisters. I'll let you work (laughs) that out. (laughs) And I was wondering whether it was the last vote I'd ever get in that church. But, and eventually they'd finished putting, you know, the various yeses and nos on the uh, respective piles. And then the count came. I couldn't see uh, what was happening, but I knew it was very close. It was certainly closer than 52 to 21, I can promise you, just by the look of it. And then I saw them do a second count. Then I saw them do a third count. And then I saw the pastor turn around and look at the conference president and secretary treasurer, and I tell you, he's... The furrows in his forehead were about three times as deep as, as I'd ever seen them before. And he went over to the conference, you know, and I thought, what's happened? What, what? And then eventually he was forced to announce the decision. He said of the 73 votes, there was one abstention. So that made it down. He said, those... Voting in favour of disfellowshipment of Dr. Standish, 36. Those against uh, him being disfellowshipped, 36. The vote was tied. You cannot cast anyone out on a tied vote. The Lord had given me the very least number of votes for the retention of my membership. But, brothers and sisters, whether it had gone the other way, I would have still stood before you as a seventh day of I pray. You know, God had performed a miracle. There was a couple. He'd been the senior elder. They were New Zealanders. They'd gone back to New Zealand. But they hadn't yet transferred their membership back to New Zealand. And in God's providence, they happened to be visiting Australia just at the very time, unbeknownst to the pastor, that this was called. They were so exercised about the matter, for they were great uh, lovers of truth, that those, that brother and sister, delayed their return to New Zealand so they could be at that meeting. Two of those 36 votes came from that brother and sister who were living in New Zealand and who had not yet bothered to transfer. And you you cannot believe the the shock on the face of the pastor when they turned up because they were still members of the church and they were supposed to be in the city of Hamilton in New Zealand. You know, what a miracle God performed. The first time when I was um, voted in by 32 to 31, there was a couple there who were absolutely determined to vote. Against me. Well, that would have put it one the other way. But their child started to scream and to kick and in the end, in desperation, they left and their vote, votes were not counted. Ca- you know, there is a God in heaven, my dear brothers and sisters, but some of you have, in God's wisdom, has not performed that miracle. That doesn't mean that you're lesser persons. You may be a better witness to what God has done in the life than myself who was retained it we are still seventh day Adventists. seventh day adventists are believers in the seventh day adventist faith and the mark is not going to be placed i'm talking about the seal of god the inkhorn mark is not going to be placed on the head of those whose names are on the roll if their lives are not compatible it will be placed upon the heads of true Seventh-day Adventists, whether recognised as such by the organisation or not. They will be recognised by the God of heaven. And so this is what we're told in verse 4 of Ezekiel 9. And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, God's church, Seventh-day Adventists, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men, that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Many Seventh day Adventists don't even believe there are any major abominations in our church. Aren't you grieved? Doesn't it break your heart? As you see what is happening, are you going around saying, ha ha, ha, ha they've done it again? Made... No, my dear brothers and sisters. This is God's church. It is a time for tears. It is a time for crying and sighing. And if there are no abominations in our church, then we are not God's true church. Because we see here that there are going to be abominations in the church at the end of time. But what about those who receive the mark of the beast? And to the others, he said in mine hearing, go ye after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have ye pity. Slay utterly old and young, both maids and little children and women. But come not near any man upon whom is the mark. That's the seal of God. And begin at my sanctuary. That's where they're going to begin. Right in the very beginning of the sanctuary. The centre of God's church. The leadership. Then they began at the ancient men. Who are the ancient men? Are they men over 90 years of age? They are the ministerial leaders, which were before the house. You know, we read this passage, and if you haven't read it, please go back and read fifth volume of the Testament. And if you have read it, and it is a long time since you've reread it. Please go back and read it. Volume 5 of the testimony, commencing page 207. The seal of God, it's called. Sorry, this is yours that I've learned. Verse, page 207, the seal of God. And it is an exposition of this chapter that we have just read. I can't read it all and I don't intend to do so. That's homework, brothers and sisters, homework. But let's read what it does say. The level of leaven of godliness has not entirely lost its power. Praise God that we see it gazely, the truth of that statement. Amen. The leaven of godliness has not lost its power, not entirely lost its power. At the time when the danger and depression of the church are greatest... Remember when Sister White refers to the church, in testimonies to the Church, she always means the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's what she's referring to. The little company who are standing in the light. You know, compared with the membership of the British Union, the number who were here yesterday is a little company. That's true, isn't it? We're not going to be evangelistic in counting our numbers. We're going to be accurate. You know... Maybe 120 We were here yesterday. It's not a lot of people. Not a lot of people. But the little company who are standing in the light will be sighing and crying for the abominations that are done in the land. See how she quotes from Scripture. But more especially, listen to this, will their prayers arise in behalf of the church. If we're not praying for God's church, Weak and defective as it is, well, we're not part of the little group that are in the light because its members are doing after the manner of the world. I had a brother ring me in Australia just before I left and he was so hateful in his feelings towards the church and I said to him, he said, I'd sooner talk to a cockroach than the general conference people. I'm telling you the words he said. It's very bad. Very bad words. And I said to him, my dear brother, I could feel that way with some of the things that have happened personally to me. But I said, Christ loves this church, weak and defective. What a gall I would have to despise. He said, oh, well, I wish I could have your, your kindly attitude, but I can't. I despise them. I have nothing to... That's how he went on. I don't know whether I got anywhere... With him, he was ringing from the south coast of New South Wales. He was very favourable to more toward me in person, but he didn't like the fact that I didn't sort of call fire and brimstone down upon the leaders of the church. I'll let God to make, make that judgment. Because its members are doing after the manner of the world. Remember we saw Satan's plan yesterday? What was one of his themes in order to prepare Seventh-day Adventists for the mark of the beast? Worldliness, wasn't it? And here Sister White says, that's what they're doing. That's what the members of the church are doing at this time. They're doing after the manner of the world. You know, God's people went through and did their duty. I don't know how to do it as fully as I would. The barriers against us speaking to God's people in Australia are so strong that you wonder how it can happen. I think they're the most difficult group in Australia to approach with the truth anymore. Are the members of God's church as a group. Because such bigotry and bias is being put into their minds. But you know, some of them go forth and proclaim the truth. And we're told on page 210, some who had been dishonouring God repented and humbled their hearts before him. Praise God. Our efforts are not fruitless. We may feel that they're not overwhelming, but they're not fruitless. There are some who have been dishonouring God when we preach the message to them, who will return to God. But the glory of the Lord had departed from Israel. In the time when his wrath shall go forth in judgment, these humble, devoted followers of Christ will be distinguished from the rest of the world by their soul anguish, which is expressed in lamentation and weeping, reproofs and warnings. You know, I have people say to me, Oh, don't bring any reproofs, don't bring any warnings. You know, just preach some positive things. Brothers and sisters, great controversy tells us that there were many reformers who thought that just by preaching the positive truth and living a sanctified life, they could for- cause a reformation. But she says the Holy Spirit came upon them and told them first that they must denounce the error. Denounce the error. People must know what is truth and what is error in the clearest and most unequivocal terms. Let us never forget that. And then we're told that this group, I'm skipping some of it because I'm praying that the homework will be done. They mourn before God to see religion despised in the very homes of those who have had great life. Religion despised in the homes of Seventh-day Adventists? They lament and afflict their souls. And listen to the four features that are in our church. Pride. Avarice. Selfishness. And deception of almost every kind are in the church. Why else does uh, my brother Colin and myself find it necessary to write keepers of the faith and winds of doctrine and books of that nature. It's because deceptions of almost every kind are in the church. And most of our people, as I said in the divine service yesterday, never stop to think, is this a deception? It sounds good. Most do not fully examine it in relationship to the law of the testimony. Errors come in, they accept the error without any biblical or other evidence and then they sit down to try and find reasons from the scripture that they can misconstrue in order to give a biblical or spirit of prophecy basis for their errors. Beware, my dear brothers and sisters. That's exactly what the early Catholic Church did. All those pagan practices, the idolatry, the mass, uh, the f- uh, forgiveness of sin by the priests and so forth came into the church. Nowhere to be found in Scripture, but make no mistake. They got down and they found excuses for their sins. They ordered a text, confess your faults one to another, to confess your sins one to another, and said that means confessing to the priest. And you'll find most of the new translations in English have confess your sins one to another. And that is used by the Catholics to indicate that the priests have the right to hear confession. They just change one word in uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, 27, where it says there that it is appointed to men once to die, and after that, the judgment. That's right. But you find that anywhere in the vast majority of the New Translations or in the Catholic translation, they say it is appointed to men once to die and after that comes judgment. It doesn't sound much to leave out the definite article, there, does it? I mean, it's a very minor difference. But the translators didn't think it was minor, for if you read our book on the New Translations, Deceptions of the New Translations you will find, we, we call it uh, new uh, translations unmasked, you will see that the translators did that omission by malice of forethought. They said if we put the word the in, it means that there's a single judgment at the end of time. Praise God, it does. But we believe that judgment comes at death. There are many judgments. And so, by saying it is appointed to men once to die and after that comes judgment, it comes a death. Not the judgment, but thousands and millions of judgments as people die on this earth. Deceptions, you see, of almost every kind. And yet, they are the Bibles which are now demanded to be used in our colleges and in our church schools rather than those that uphold. The truth of God. Pride, avarice. Look, one of the greatest sins in the organised church is robbery today. Robbery. You don't know how much time and pain I had to spend in my 31 and a half years of denominational service dealing with absolute theft. One man, an ordained elder, who had high respect from me until this happened stole the equivalent of 750000 U.S. dollars. Now, that's not peanuts in any language. $750,000. And then when he was dismissed, he had the gall to take us to court for improper dismissal. Mm -hmm. I was very concerned. This was in the country of Malaysia because his judge was of the same ethnic background as himself. I've been called for many reasons to testify in in court when you're a physician, you often are, but I had to testify this time for 18 and a half hours, not all on the one day, but a total of 18 and a half hours and all but half an hour of that, I was grilled by the the lawyer of this uh, ex-worker who had stolen all this money was the best thing that ever happened because naturally he didn't ask me questions that gave me any leads into telling the judge what had happened. But I thought after a little while, I'll see whether I can get away with going beyond answering his question and start to tell all the evidence. I'd been to the bank. I'd found his forgeries uh, of uh, signatories and so forth without any dispute, even on statutory declarations. And... uh, and so I started to mention this. And I was surprised that the judge did not rebuke me. And I was very surprised that the, uh, the lawyer didn't uh, object to the judge, although he didn't like what I was doing. And in the end, I said, well, Your Honour, I have the documentation with me. Would you like to make that part of the record of this case? And so uh, in this way, we were able to get the record of the case and that judge, of course, upheld the hospital and everything which it had done uh, in that case. But avarice, at the same time, the very same time, we were dealing with uh, the um, embezzlement from, of 130-something Malay dollars, which would be about 75,000 Australian dollars, from, uh, uh, from our hospital fund. I'd known him for years. You know, when you've worked with people and trusted them, it breaks your heart. And then there was my predecessor as the president of the hospital, an ordained credential, Seventh day Adventist minister. He had just robbed the hospital blind. And do you know what his penalty was when this was all proven? He didn't lose his credentials. He didn't lose his ordination or his church membership, which would have been proper. He was promoted eventually to be over the whole of the medical work of the vast Far Eastern division after they knew what he had done. Eventually, he left the work and now he is just working in secular employment. That's where he belongs. That's where he belongs. But my dear brothers and sisters... Avarice. in one country of this world in one year 13 financial men were dismissed for financial dishonesty the number of our workers who enhance their expense account look they sooner have a few extra dollars now than eternity they can't believe you cannot believe in the judgment and go and steal god's money that is an impossibility Brothers and sisters, we are in serious times. But you know, it goes on to say here on page 211 that here we see that the church, the Lord's sanctuary, was the first to feel the stroke of the wrath of God. The ancient men, those to whom God had given great light, and who had stood as guardians of the spiritual interests of the people, had betrayed their trust. This is talking generally. There will be some exceptions, of course. The ancient men, those who stood as the spiritual guardians, cannot be any doubt they're the ministers of the people, had betrayed their trust. As God looks down on his church today, he is saying the vast majority of pastors have betrayed that trust. Pray God that none of us, and I'm speaking, when I say pastors, I include elders, every much, and there are elders who are here, we are just as elders responsible as our pastors. And most of those have betrayed uh, their trust. And yet most of our people hang on every word of the pastor. The men who have betrayed their trust. And then we read, thus, peace and safety is the cry from men who will never again lift up their voice like a trumpet to show God's people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. And listen to the strong words. Of course, it's quoting Isaiah 56, I think it is, in verse 10. It's not mentioned here. These dumb dogs that would not bark are the ones who feel the just vengeance of an offended God But the most terrible thing is that the abominations for which the faithful ones were sighing and crying were all that could be discerned by finite eyes. Look, what we see are so terrible. But by far the worst sins, those which provoke the jealousy of a pure and holy God were unrevealed. Do you mean to say that the worst sins none of us know anything about? What we know about appalls us. But there are even worse sins that none of us know anything about. God in his mercy has spared us the sorrow of knowing these. I can't think of any worse sins except one than the ones I know about in God's church and that would be to have people who knowingly are bowing down and worshipping Satan and praying to Satan. Now, I've never met any adventist of any description who i knew did that that's about the only worst sin of all the sins that i could imagine now of course it's no use speculating we just don't know we don't know but such are the abominations in god's church the ones that we know are not the ones that are most offensive to our pure and holy god are we to receive the seal of the living god And be ready to stand in the crisis of Revelation 13. Or are we going to compliantly accept the mark of the beast? Avoid the wrath of man. And await the wrath of a pure and holy God. That is the decision before us all. Now that decision is not made in the light of just pure, plain, objective facts. It is made in the light of the cross of Calvary, in the light of the love of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I do not believe that the fear of the punishment that will come upon those who receive the mark of the beast will ever be the sole motivation that will bring people to receive the seal of the living God. It is only the love of Jesus. That is all that can motivate her. If we do not love Jesus with the whole heart, if we are such ungrateful people that we do not thank him over and over again for his death, for his life, for his ministration in the most holy place then we will never, ever receive the seal of the living God. It's only that love which can motivate us, not the fear of the judgment. And I'm just praying that this weekend that I love Jesus a little more than I did on Friday evening when it commenced. Not because of my messages, but because of the presence of the Holy Spirit here. That's why. Because I need to grow in love for Christ. We all do. We all need to grow. And I think we're all aware that it is a battle and a march. But it is a battle and a march that God has promised he will bring us through victoriously. But there is a condition that we yield day by day to him. Oh, God bless you all here in dear old England. And may he continue to place his loving arms. And may this group, although small, be the igniting factor which will lighten the whole of this old and ancient nation So that God's true people will arise mightily and stand for him though the heavens may fall. God bless you all.